Welcome to the Flying Baton, the magical land of beginning band. Coming to you from the beautiful Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, your host, Charlie Nesmith. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the show. Just a couple notes before we begin our interview today is that our podcast now supports chapter markers. So if you're in the Apple Podcast app, you can swipe up, or if you use Pocket Cast or Overcast, you can swipe right and then jump around to the topics of the interview that interest you most. Also, stick around to the end of the episode where we have our beginning band pick of the week. Here we dive into a piece of music that you could possibly use in your program. Let's get started. Randall Standridge is an active composer, clinician, and conductor. He received his Bachelor's of Music Education degree from Arkansas State University. In 2001, he began his tenure as director of bands at Harrisburg High School in Harrisburg, Arkansas. After 12 years of teaching, he left this post to pursue a career as a full-time composer and marching arts designer. Mr. Standridge's works are available from a wide variety of publishers. He's had numerous works selected for the J.W. Pepper's Editor's Choice, as well as having several works selected for the Teaching Music Through Performance and Band series. His work Stonewall 1969 was premiered at the National LGBA Conference in 2019. Mr. Standridge is also a contributing composer for Alfred Music's Sound Innovations Ensemble Development Series. In addition to his career as a composer, Mr. Standridge is the owner and editor of Randall Standridge Music LLC and Grand Mesa Marching. He lives in Jonesboro, Arkansas with his family. All right, everybody, we're here with Randall Standridge. Randall, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. So the question I, I really like to lead with is if there's one thing that you can stand on the mountaintop and proclaim to band directors everywhere, what would it be? Um, buy my music. No, just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> anyway, uh, no, if I could pick one thing to say to all beginning band directors, it would be um, two, well, two things, and I really can't choose between them. Uh, the first would just be tone, 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 mm. tone. Um, and uh, if you want me to expand on that, I can in a moment. But I mean, I, I am a tone uh, stickler. That's got to be the main thing the students are learning in beginning band. The second thing um, is going to be to, it's kind of a double thing, but on the one hand, you have to make sure you're addressing music literacy every day um, in a very certain way for that particular age group. And you also need to be teaching them the methodology for how to practice, not just that they should practice, but that practicing is an art form. It is a skill set. And if you impart that to them, you're setting them up for long-term success and growth. Um, and unfortunately it's some skill sets that as I travel the country and visit programs, I see lacking a little bit. Um, and I try to help where I can. I mean, I'm never, I don't just, you know, sit back and judge people and just go, Hmm, that's not good. You know, it's, you always try to lend a hand, but you can only do so much in one day. And, uh, so, uh, I, those would be the things that I would really like scream, like these need to be done. Well, if you could just give an example of teaching someone how to practice, what would be an example of like a concrete skill that you think needs to be communicated to the student? Well, the biggest thing I would say is that it needs, they, they need to understand that it is a process. Like it's not just sit down, whip out your instrument and start playing. And that's what a lot of kids do, especially at that young age, because they're so excited and it's so, you know, it's fun, it's playtime. But I think if you can teach them to have success, you know, that's going to be key. And again, like I said, this is a double fold thing because on the one hand, for whatever, you know, uh, lines or skill set that you're teaching at that moment, you have to make sure that they have the necessary skills and vocabulary to to be able to practice it on their own. So, again, this goes back to literacy. But anyway, um, an example, you know, just teaching them to kind of break down the process of learning music. 
um, that they don't have to start with playing, mm. you know, taking that moment to look at the page, figuring out the key signatures, looking for any notes that they don't know the finger positions to, um, you know, writing in things that might be a little unusual. Like I know for my beginners, if there were any like large leaps, um, you know, anything that's like a sixth or above, um, I would have them write in the first note. Now, I mean, I am, you know, I'm pretty much like other directors. I'm not a big uh, advocate of writing in all notes, but I mean, I, I mean, just to be honest, I've been playing music for 30 years. I mean, I've got a marimba right behind me that I still play in practice. And if there's a giant leap in the music, I mean, keeping in mind, I'm 43 years old, play music for you know, ages now. I still write it in because, you know, the ultimate goal is to play the music correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes you just have to give yourself that little bit of heads up and teaching them that. The next thing I, that I think is essential to teach them, and this is where I'm going to be honest, it might be a little controversial for your podcast, um, where me and some directors have a strong difference of opinion is the very nature of music performance. And that is, you know, it comes down to the question, is music performance primarily mental or physical? And um, of course, you know, all of us that are artists and academics, you know, the, the gut reaction is to say, oh, well, it's a mental skill. You know, we want to think of it, we want to make it sound really brainy. But um, the actual physical, per- and I think percussionists tend to get this better than wind players <laughs> do. And not, not because we're smarter. I mean, not at all. But just you can say that we're smarty. That's okay. Yeah. Well, you know, well, you, you can't, you can't, you, you know, you can't say it where people can hear it. Because right. then somebody might, you know, I, you know, I, I, be, I believe there's a law that if you do that, Brian Bellamy just puts out a hit on you or something like that because he's a trumpet <laughs> player, you know. But, um, but anyway, uh, the to me, uh, what one thing that helped my teaching was when I finally realized that playing music, the actual performance of music, is way more physical than it is mental. And this is important. I I strongly, strongly feel that this is important both for teachers and for students to understand because it changes the way you prepare music. Um, You know, whereas if you're just sitting there trying to intellectually understand understand something and you keep getting it wrong, what you really should be doing is repetitions. You know, there's the famous saying that I did not come up with. It's, you know, don't play it until you get it right. Play it until you can't get it wrong. And this is like, you know, going back to the idea of repetition. Um, so teaching students that during practice, it's, I mean, you need to be explicit. Don't try to trick them into it. Be explicit and say, we are building up muscle memory. Why like every repetition you do is more chances for you to get it right and to teach that skill. Um, and so doing that and giving them a strong foundation of literacy where they have the skills to like name notes, get finger positions, take things slow so that the um, muscle memory that they are developing is correct muscle memory is essential for good practicing. I've thought sometimes as a percussionist, you know, if someone took my brain and put it in somebody else's body and then they put me in front of this marimba back here, like, like how difficult would that be? You know, I have like 25 years of physical conditioning and muscle memory. And if, if like, if all that was taken away, I don't know, I just try to envision that when, when I'm teaching my sixth graders. Oh yeah. That like, they're going through that for the first time, you know? Yes. Well, and you know, too, like with beginning band, um, you know, it's, it's not just a matter. Yeah. I, I tell, I, I try to tell people that like really teaching beginning band is like teaching three separate things. And we're trying to teach it at once. Uh, we're teaching musical literacy, but that is really a mental skill. You know, that's just knowledge. Then we're teaching the physical, like, how do you manipulate the instrument? And that's a physical skill. And that's what we're you know mainly getting them to do. And then, you know, you add on top of that, a sense of rhythm and ensemble, which is a whole other area of the brain. 
I mean, we are asking the kids to do a lot at once. Mm -hmm. And um, I know for the the last six years of my career when I was teaching, um, I really broke those areas down. Um, Just as an example, um, I started tackling the instrument and tone first, like the physical aspect. We didn't even start with, you know, books or um, lines or even reading music, at least not like organizing. I was doing... um, what I called literacy drills. And if we want to talk about that more in a second, we can do that. But, um, you know, we would start with just like, I play, you play. Here's what you do with your instrument. Do this, just repeat it back to me. And we did a lot of that just to get the kids very comfortable with their instrument. Um, My beginning flute players, um, it was expected that by the end of their first um, semester, so from, you know, August to December, they would be able to play a chromatic scale from the C below the staff up to the F above the staff and back down from memory, naming all the notes correctly, sharp on the way up and flats on the way down. Now, could they read that? Absolutely not. <laughs> but they could play it. They could play it with good tones and they, you know, the physicality of the instrument just kind of, and, you know, you extrapolate that out to all the other instruments that we did that with. Yeah, you know, and we would teach brass players, my brass players, I would teach everything as a position. Like, I wouldn't just say first and second finger. I'd be like, okay, you know, this is, you know, open is first position, middle finger is second, and so forth. And so when we started getting into half steps, I was like, okay, from here we go from five to four and whatever. Um, they they got it, like, as, you know, as the instrument. And so there was just a lot of that physical teaching and tackling it separately. Then incorporating elements of literacy, then incorporating, you know, ensemble elements, which were the last thing we worried about in the first year. Um and just kind of breaking it down. And I just had a lot more success. I mean, we were able to practically fly as, you know, with the beginning band, as opposed to dragging like I was before. Well, you mentioned you had some specific ideas on tone. Um, could you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, I mean, it's not so much teaching, because I, I think like everybody's got their own concept of tone. And, you know, we've all got our tricks that we use. And th- so that would be like too broad a topic to get into. But what I will say to your listeners is, you know, for those of you that may not understand why, you know, like myself, other directors, judges, um, harp on tone so much, I just want to give you the best analogy I can. And this, um, I want to give credit where it's due. This analogy was given to me by one of my mentor teachers. Um, I mean, I didn't student teach with him, but he was just one of those that kind of took me under his wing and taught me to be a director. His name's Steve Warner. Um, he was the band director at Jonesboro High School for many, many years in Jonesboro, Arkansas. Just brilliant, brilliant educator. Uh, but he said something to me early in my career that just stuck. Because um, I was uh, you know, talking about all the things I was working on with my band. And he's like, well, how much are you focusing on tone? And I was like, well, you know, I was like, well, we're working on rhythm stuff. And I mean, I was I was a young director. So I was like, oh, we'll get to that later. And he just like kind of stopped like he was offended. And he grabbed me by the shoulder. He's like, now, Randall, listen. <laughs> he was like, if your band doesn't play 16th notes really well, you can just pick music that doesn't have 16th notes, you know. And if you have and, you know, if your band doesn't play in the key of D flat very well, you can just not play in the key of D flat. He's like, but if you, if your band's tone is bad, your band is bad from beginning to end of any performance. And to me, that was really profound because like, you know, it doesn't matter like what else you're doing is correct. And I think we've all been there when we've heard concerts and I'm not even just talking about band, but like musicians that, you know, really benefit from auto-tune, you know, and when you hear them live, it's like, wow, that's not great. Um, and, uh, you know, that that idea of tone being important, it, I mean, it is the number one thing that audiences and judges are always aware of. There's yeah. not, uh, unless you're resting, 
you are always using tone. So if your tone is bad, everything you're doing sounds bad. Even if you're getting the rhythm right, even if you're in positions right, it just sounds bad. And ultimately, we're dealing in an art form of sound. So that's why it's important. Thanks for your thoughts on that. Well, thanks thanks to Steve Warner. He, like I said, he, he was real stickler on that. And I took that lesson real quick. <laughs> So I think a lot of band directors don't realize that you taught for so long, you know, in the field uh, and you taught six through 12 uh, for 12 years. Is that correct? Uh, five, five through 12. Oh, five. Through um, 12. And yeah. And the fifth grade was was not beginning band. It was a recorder band, you know, like flutophones uh, mm-hmm. and things like that, which I actually enjoyed. I mean, I know there's a lot of people, you know, I think, you know, what I like, you know, band jocks that really don't enjoy that. But I loved it. And I will tell you, it was my best recruiting tool I ever had. So did you see all of the fifth graders in your division? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, when I keep in mind that I taught at a small school, like I was the band director five through 12. I, and until the last few years I was there, I had zero help. Hmm. Um, and so I had to be like the music guy. So the kids that I had, like starting in fifth grade that joined band, I mean, I had them all the way till they were seniors. It was, it was an amazing opportunity. Well, how would you describe your, uh, your first year teaching? Um, basically just white knuckled panic. Um, but I, but I don't think that was just because of me. Um, the situation I walked into was somewhat unique. Um, the band that I, uh, which was Harrisburg high school in Harrisburg, Arkansas, uh, well, Harrisburg and middle school, cause I was teaching at, you know, both campuses, which were technically all one campus. The band program had had three band directors in the previous two years prior to my appointment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you can you know, already see where that's going. Um, the, uh, in Arkansas and I, you know, and in a lot of the Southern states and I'm you know, pretty sure across a lot, you know, there's a rating system for like contests, you know, divisions one, two, three, four, five, um, or what, you know, however it's rated. But in, in our state, it's division one is superior. Division five is the worst you can possibly get. And it's rarely given. Well, this particular band, the last time they had gone to a concert festival, they had received straight fives mm. and, um, you know, just, just not a lot of pride in the program. And it wasn't the students. I mean, I, one thing I discovered really quick, you know, going into the program was that the students were absolutely fantastic. Um, they had just not been trained properly. And, yeah. uh, you know, and of course, I mean, I'm a, I'm a firm believer that success breeds success and sometimes failure breeds failure. And it, you know, when, you know, so anyway, we had the point being, we had a lot of work to do and I was a first year teacher, you know, straight out of college um, I was very fortunate, though, because um, I, I was very comfortable in front of a classroom uh, because in addition to, um, you know, doing my student teaching, the previous four years, I had been um, working with marching bands, uh, doing sectionals for concert bands, doing private lessons. So um, I will say that I definitely benefited from that. I mean, because I, I, I was not shy at all. Like my first day I walked in, I was like, OK, I'm the director. Here we go. Let's fix this. You know, yeah. and so um, so it, it was it was an interesting experience. I mean, and I'm not going to say mistakes were not made. I mean, I learned a lot <laughs> that first year, uh, but I mean, it, it was good. And it was uh, the one benefit, the one good thing I'll say about it is because the program had been so terrible, like, you know, I, I just, you know, honestly, that first year, I mean, I did a good job, but I wouldn't say I did a great job, but you know, I did good. We, we were able to play the fight song and things like that. And, um, I mean, they, they thought that I hung the moon, like, you know, and so I think, you know, going into a program like that and just being halfway competent, um, it was fun because, uh, the, you know, it just, people were appreciative. And the students were appreciative. And I mean, you know, well, I will say not at first. I mean, I was the jerk at first because, you know, <laughs> because we didn't ha- we didn't have Disney cartoon day every Tuesday and Thursday, you know, <laughs> and so I was actually making them work. So I was the jerk at first, but eventually they came around and, and it ended up being a great, 
a, a great experience. And I mean, the program just grew over 12 years. It was, it was fantastic. So teaching five through 12 and teaching general music, beginning band, high school band, marching band, how in the world did you find time to compose through all that? Uh, well, I mean, yeah, I think some people will get the misconception sometimes that like I always had the goal of being a composer and kind of being a composer whose name was out there. And that really was not the case. Um, I mean, I've always enjoyed composition. Um, it's been a hobby of mine since I was in junior high school, but it was just something fun to do. Like I just I, I just enjoyed composing. So, um, you know, I'd go, you know, teach band, come home and just write for an hour, you know, sometimes an hour or two. Um, and then, uh, you know, have my home life as well. So, um, I would just write, you know, whenever the, the urge took me, um, and eventually, um, and I was writing a lot for my program because my program got a lot better. Uh, but my program was always small. I mean, smaller than like what you think of with your know, really successful bands because the school was small. Yeah. Um, you know, we're, I mean, every class, like, you know, every grade level had between 50 or 60 kids. Um, and, uh, so the largest high school band I ever had was 38, um, but they were good. And so I ended up writing a lot of things for them because there's just a lot of literature that is, well, there's, well, excuse me, let me rephrase that. There's not a lot of literature that challenges small groups like that. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, usually the, you know, you'll hear groups like that playing grade one and two literature festival because that's all their instrumentation can cover. Yeah. Um, but so I was, you know, kind of writing also out of necessity just to write some things that uh, that, you know, my kids that would help them grow and they would enjoy. They wouldn't be boring. Did you have um, like a support system or some specific mentors who like kind of encouraged you like, hey, you need to try to get published, like put yourself out there. Did you have someone like that in your life? Um, I had a few, actually. Um, I mean, first of all, my composition teachers were always very, very supportive of me. Um, I, I took composition lessons in college, um, even though I was a, a music ed major. I, you know, again, I was interested in it, and I wanted some more training. So I studied with Dr. Tom O'Connor at Arkansas State University. And um, he was always extremely encouraging. He was involved in um, publishing things. And so he is always very encouraging, like, you know, you should do this. Um, and then also uh, my husband, Steve, um, he is... I mean, he's always been my biggest fan and he's always, you know, just doing that. But, you know, the, the thing too is, uh, you know, and I'm sure many of your director for, uh, listeners out there can relate to this. You know, when you're in a married situation and you're first starting out, like you're young, you're 20 years old, 25 years old, um, and just getting established, just buying a house, just doing that stuff. Um, you know, anytime you have an opportunity to bring in a little bit of extra income, it's a good thing. You know, um, <laughs> it, it can really, well, I mean, it can really stabilize things, you know, yeah. And so, um, you know, on the, on the artistic side, he's always been my biggest supporter. And also on the financial side, he's like, let's go do this. Like we need to, you know, this, this can help us out. And so, uh, so he's been encouraging both for, you know, artistic and financial reasons. Well, I have a two month old in the house. So, uh, I am, I'm feeling that statement right there. <laughs> oh yeah. 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 It's awesome. So when you're approaching, uh, composing a fresh piece of music, do you have a particular creative process that you go through or is it maybe something different each time? Um, it's a little bit of both. Usually the start of the process is the biggest variable, um, you know, which is the brainstorming part, the inspiration part, you know, when you're you know, getting the ideas to piece together. Once all that's in place, um, I will say I tend to fall into a general pattern that has some variation, but it's usually pretty, you know, pretty much the same. Uh, the first thing I usually do is I'll structure the piece. Like I'll take the pieces and I'll you know, this is going to happen first. This is going to lead to this. This is going to transition to this. Because um, one thing, uh, 
Yeah, um, just just to preface this, I got my start as a composer actually as a marching band arranger. And that's important to this conversation because usually your deadlines in marching band are very fast. You have to turn things around really quickly. And so I learned early on that I needed to make sure that I didn't waste time. And so for me, making sure that the structure of a piece is you know, being logical and um, not being any you know, waste, uh, that's important because I don't want to spend time on 32 measures of music that I'm going to end up cutting. You know, mm. So I get the structure out, then I'll do a first orchestration. I'll listen to it a lot. Then I'll do a second draft, you know, start making tweaks. Um, and then um, even beyond that, I purposely try to cut between 10 to 15% of the piece out. Um, because in my opinion, a lot of band music, now not the classics, but, you know, just like general band music, um, repeats itself too much and is way too long and it gets very, very boring. Mm. Um, so that's, uh, that's one thing I was aware of as a director when I was you know playing pieces and I was like, well, God, I don't want my music to sound like that. So I try to keep things as short and sweet as possible. And I've written some long pieces, but even with my longer pieces, I don't feel like there's anything that's unnecessary. <laughs> Um, you know, if people ever complain about my pieces being long, I always tell them, well, you should have seen the first draft, you know, because it's it's usually like, you know, quite a bit longer. Well, when you're um, going about specifically composing for young band, I know that you have pieces for all levels. But do you find some aspects of composing for beginning band and or middle school band to be particularly challenging compared to writing for higher level groups? Uh, not really for me, but again, my background is a little bit unique. Um, I think the whole experience of being a marching band arranger really influenced that, because when, you know when you're when you're a marching band arranger, you're given an instrumentation, you're given a skill set that that a director tells you you can do, and you just make it work. Um, you know, and you just have to do that. And so I learned that early on. So whenever I write for young band, I just approach it with, you know, okay, what can this grade level do and how can we make it interesting and how can we, um, you know, express something artistically here. So um, I, I don't particularly find it difficult. Um, and, you know, usually even even when I when it does get a little bit challenging, like, because, you know, I want to do something they can't do. Um, I just, uh, I mean, I don't get too married to it. I'm just like, well, they can't. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a pretty pragmatic person. I just cut it. And I'm like, all right, well, what can they do? All right, this, that works. Let's move on. You know, and um, then again, just going back through the process of listening to it, making sure it's interesting, making sure it doesn't, you know, violate my own rules of, uh, of what is good aesthetically, you know. So I saw you had posted on Facebook. Uh, this might have been like maybe three weeks ago. So someone or some persons were were giving you crap because one of the pieces that you composed was very different than what I guess what people consider like a normal Randall Standridge piece. Could you talk a little bit about your 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 voice as a composer and uh, how you deal with with people like that who are messaging you? Oh sure, yeah. Well, and actually, it wasn't um, it wasn't so much about the type of piece; it was about the grade level. Hmm. Um, because, um, generally speaking and uh, keeping in mind, I'm generalizing here. Um, but if you start your career writing a lot of young band music, you know, grade two, grade three, things like that, I don't know where this goes, but there, there just becomes this perception that that's all you can write, hmm. you know, uh, whereas, you know, if you start your career in grade five, six, you know, academic literature, and then you, you know, suddenly come down from that and write a grade two or three, everybody thinks you're a genius, you know? And so, um, 
So um, I've I, one thing I've been working on with my career is I've been trying to get my more advanced music taken more seriously. And uh, I am definitely the type of person that will not take no for an answer. Um, so whether people play it or not, I'm going to keep writing it. I'm going to keep putting it out there. Um, and I'm doing some things that, uh, you know, to try to help with that. Um, I'm, I, I'm not going to lie. I've been making, you know, more contacts in the college band world and making relationships there. Uh, and it's been paying off. I've been getting commissions, you know, more grade four, five and six commissions now, which has, has been nice. Um, I've also, uh, taken on a project that should come to fruition in the next couple of weeks, which is I've actually put together an album, like an actual like classical album that is going to be released on iTunes and Spotify and things like that. Um, and it's all, well, not all, it's mostly, um, you know, my upper level music, my grade four, my grade five, things like that. Although uh, because of my roots as a young band composer, I was sure to include on there um, some of my young band music as well. I included this uh, large scale work for young band called the Garden Suite, um, which is composed of uh, frogs, March of the Arachnids, flowers, and bees. And uh, the recordings on it are just really nice. And uh, so I, you know, I, I don't know at what point somebody decided music has to be super advanced to be enjoyable or to be worthy of <laughs> to be worthy of being recorded in a context other than a demo thing. Yeah. But um, this album is really cool. I'm really excited about it. Um, you know, and do I expect it to be a big hit? Absolutely not. But this was just a project that I wanted to do, and um, it, it was a lot of fun. I had a blast doing it. I learned a lot, and I'm already planning the next one. Um, and hopefully, you know, this might might give my music just a little more legitimacy. You know, when people see that you're like on an actual released album, it, it does add a little bit of you know. Thing. So, uh, so my uh, my road might be a little non traditional, but I'm going to keep marching it. You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, I wanted to ask you about your album. I had some questions about that. Um, what was your inspiration behind wanting to produce the album? There is this saying that I heard a long time ago that I really took to heart, which was, "If the opportunity does not exist, create it." Mm-hmm. And so, you know, a lot of composers just sit around waiting for somebody to say, "Hey, we want to record your music," or "Hey, you know, my ensemble is going to do this." And I mean, you know, of course I was like that too. I was just like, you know, well, it gotta be great if, you know, one of the big groups would record my stuff. And one day I just had the thought, I was like, well, why am I waiting on them? You know, why am I doing this? So we put, um, what I did is uh, that piece that I mentioned, the garden suite, I put together a consortium, uh, which ra- which through the schools participating, raised the money to produce the album. Uh, we hired studio musicians, uh, recorded it in Indianapolis, and I just did it myself. Um, I mean, I mean, you know, with it, were you conducting on that album? Oh yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm, um, there now I will say I was, um, there's a lot of pieces that I'm really proud of that, uh, you know, were not recorded for this particular album, but I have a very good relationship with Grand Mesa music. Um, the owner, Walter Cummings, um, who, you know, has been a huge advocate of mine and a big supporter. Um, they have these great recordings. I mean, technically they're demo recordings, but one thing I'll say about Grand Mesa, their demo recordings do not sound like demo recordings. They sound like performances. Mm. And um, part of that is because they they had a really good relationship with the University of Northern Colorado, and particularly with um, Dr. Kenneth Singleton and Dr. Richard Maine, um, who you know produced all those recordings, but they they really wanted them to sound like performances. And so we did select a few of their performances. So, so UNC is credited on the album as one of the artists, and I did not conduct those. Um, and we notated on each of yeah we notated on each of the tracks like who conducted what. Um, but that, there were just some recordings that were really fine 
uh, from that ensemble that kind of, kind of helped round out the album. You know, do you have a release date for us? Um, I I don't because um, one of the things I have learned uh, through this whole process is that there is there are very strict and I mean like strict guidelines, particularly for classical music, um, more so than like pop music or anything else. And so uh, right now my album is in a review process. Uh, we had intended to release it. Uh, I wanted to release it during June um, because uh, the track on it that I'm the most proud of, which is Stonewall 1969, uh, is a celebration uh, you know, of the gay rights movement. And um, it, uh, you know, it would have been nice to release it during Pride Month. Mm-hmm. Um, and it still may happen. I mean, I don't know. But basically, I submitted it to them. Um, I, you know, Apple is reviewing it for iTunes. Um, they're reviewing it for Spotify and things like that. And they'll either say yes or no. If they say yes, they'll give me the dates that it's going to go on. If they say no, then I mean, I mean, they're not going to say no, like we're not going to release this. But I might have to change some formats, re, you know, redo some things. So um, right now we're just kind of in the waiting game, but we've got everything ready to go. I'm just waiting to get the go ahead from them. And is, is the title of that uh, The New Day Dawns or is there a different title? Uh, well, almost. Uh, it's a, a New Day Dawns. A New Day Dawns. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we'll look out for that. That's really exciting. Uh, all right. So here's a little bit of a, maybe an insider question. And you don't have to answer this if you don't want to. But generally speaking, do composers make more money writing for the middle school age group or for the high school age group when it comes to sales and quantity of music sold? Oh, absolutely. Middle school. Like there is no comparison. And um, part of that is because like at the middle school level, you're not dealing with just the, um, well, first of all, the classics. I mean, like, you know, at you know, at grade one, grade two, grade three, you're not competing with Holst. You're not competing with Granger. You're not competing with all that. So there's this like hunger for new music, you know, uh, not to mention that I'm just going to say that I think we're coming into kind of a golden age of middle school music right now. And mm. I mean, I think I write very well for it, but I'm certainly not the only one. Um, and I think people are just realizing like all the possibilities for that age group. So there's that. And then on second of that, I mean, it's just numbers. If you look across the country, um, there are more middle schools than high schools, you know, hence there are more middle school ensembles than, than high school ensembles. And lastly, um, you know, even at grade one, you know, one thing I will say that I really don't like, I don't like it when people call, you know, that grade one and two music, middle school music. Because there are high school ensembles and, you know, even some like, you know, third level college ensembles that do perform that music. Mm -hmm. And so it's just it's just about the vocabulary and, you know, within the repertoire. Um, And so, you know, you've got that huge demographic because, you know, when you go up to grade five and six music, there's relatively very few ensembles that will be able to play it. Well, I I totally resonate with your thought that we're kind of in the golden age of kind of quote middle school music we we played um a tyler grant piece in my eighth grade band this year uh mission apollo and it just i mean the kids loved it and and it really just struck me it's like wow this is like this is a work of art like this isn't something that somebody's like i'm gonna now make a beginning band piece that'll make me a lot of money you know it was like right this this is majestic yeah i will tell you though because i'm a firm believer in this too i i think when people just write to write i mean it's like hey i'm just gonna write you know this to make a lot of money i think you can tell like, I, mm. I, I mean, I, th- I don't, I don't mean like by the person, I mean, I mean, the music speaks it. Yeah. Um, you can, you can tell music that is authentic and sincere and music that is just, you know, written for whatever sake. 
Um, And I don't want to give the impression that like, I think that everything I write is great. I will say that I do think everything I release is great. (laughs) Um, But for every piece that I've got out there, I've got another piece or two on my computer that nobody will ever hear and nobody would want to hear. And so, uh, you know, it's, I think it's about having a certain taste level and a certain expectation of excellence um, and composers should exercise that on themselves, even when a, uh, a publisher is knocking down your door and saying, hey, this is due. You still need to put out your best foot forward, you know. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. We, um, so my eighth grade group played uh, Dark Ride for our Halloween concert this year. And it was just really apparent that a lot of like a lot of fun went into writing that piece of music. Like the whole thing was just really fun and the kids loved it. And it's like, OK, this is just someone put a lot of passion into this. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Well, and thank you. Um, that one, you know, sometimes I will say sometimes I do what I like to call persona composing. And what I mean by that is um, I am definitely I'm like a composer's composer. I don't just sit around and listen to my own music. My musical tastes are just wildly eclectic. Um, I listen to every type of music you can imagine, and I get inspired by all of it. Um, so Dark Ride, for example, is one of those that was inspired uh, both by kind of my love of Danny Elfman. Um, you know, his, his kind of quirky, dark, um, gothic style and just mixed with that kind of fun house horror movie, you know, kind of vibe. Um, so that's what I wanted it to sound like, um, you know, which is fun because, you know, that's going to make it sound very different from like blah, blah, blah overture, you know? Mm -hmm. So uh, I think it's good to explore, you know, different styles of music and and to explore it authentically. Because one thing I, that kind of irks me is when, You'll hear when you hear like a band composer write a rock piece, you know, and I, you know, if you can see me, I'm like doing like quotes, a <laughs> rock piece, and it does not sound like rock. Like it's, it's, it's a band version of rock. Mm-hmm. But for me, like, uh, you know, when I was writing music for my kids, if I want to play a rock piece, it's going to sound like a rock piece. Uh, we're going to embrace that style and not try to tart it up like a, like a, you know, band composition. Mm. Um, so I just, I don't know. I just think there's, you know, I, I think it's apparent when people are writing very inauthentically or they take something that's really fun. Um, well, I'll give you an example. Um, I, one of the pieces on the album is a piece called Havana Nights. Um, and, um, I have a passion for mambo music. I love mambo music. And when I wrote this piece, I wanted it to sound like mambo. Now, granted, it's my version of mambo, but I still wanted it to have that feel and that excitement. Um, but what I didn't want to do was to, you know, take it through a Bach fugue or anything like that, which I mean, could be interesting. That was just not the, that was not the goal for this particular piece. You know, I wanted it to have that really authentic, like, you know, you would hear this in a nightclub. Yeah. Um, so I just, I, you know, I think one thing that makes, you know, the current middle school music so interesting is that a lot of composers are embracing that authentic voice. That, you know, I want this to sound like a movie score. I want this to sound like pop music. I want this to sound like this. And we're kind of breaking out of that mold of this has to sound like a band overture. So something that's been a little bit uh, controversial amongst uh, my middle school friends versus my high school friends um, is the the concept of renting music versus buying it. Mm-hmm. Um, like there are some composers who are treating their pieces kind of like musical theater does where like you can rent it for a performance, but you can't own it. And as a, as a middle school person, I'm like, well, why would I do that? I, I want something to put in my library and to become part of my curriculum. And a lot of the high school directors I know, they're like, no, you just, we just have to do this now. And this is a thing. And what, what are your thoughts on renting versus purchasing music? Well, um, 
it's, I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to be honest. I may not be the best person to ask this because I mean, I, you know, all of my music is for sale. Like it's, I, I don't rent things. I'm not saying I never would, but it's just nothing I've, I've really done. Um, but for me, like if I were ever going to do that, it would be because the piece was special in some way, in some context, um, or, you know, just significant, um, or just because I wanted to maintain control of it and see who was performing it. Um, you know, well, especially like, you know, some big pieces. And I, I hope this isn't going to come across as snobby because I don't mean this at all. But like, you know, in the age of YouTube and in the age of Facebook and everything, it's very easy for anybody to create a performance of your music and just put it out there. And some of those performances are great and some <laughs> are not so great. And um, so, you know, some composers have very strong feelings about how their music appears in public. And um, so I could see like why that would be one aspect, you know, just controlling the, the access to the music, I guess you'd say. Um, the second reason I think has more to do with um, in the age of PDFs and Google drives that just copyright law, mm-hmm. um, because um, and again, I'm generalizing, but there are there is a sizable part of the band directing community that is either a very ignorant about copyright law or B, just flat out does not care, and they don't realize how it affects composers. Uh, because I'm going to, like, let me give you an example of like how it potentially affects composers. The bottom line is that most publishing companies, as much as we like to say, you know, we're artists and things like that, which we are, you know, we're creating art to share with the world, but it is also a business. And that's, I mean, that's just a cold, hard fact. Um, so my breakout piece, like the piece that really made my career was this piece called Adrenaline Engines. Um, which haunts me in my dreams. Gosh, because I've been the Adrenaline Engine guys for 10 years now. But anyway, um, when that piece came out, you know, for a, for a band piece to be, you know, six, quote unquote successful for a publishing company, um, it usually needs to sell between two to 400 copies. That doesn't sound like a lot, but you've got to keep in mind, you know, the band world really is not that big. So if, you know, if a piece sells 200, 400 copies in its first year, it really is considered successful. Um, Adrenaline Engines in its first year sold a little over 2,000 copies. Wow. Um, so, so in terms of band pieces, that was like a multi-platinum, you know, bestseller, <laughs> you know, as, uh, which I'm very grateful for. You know, and, well, and because of that, my publisher was willing to, you know, take more chances with my music, to publicize my music and do things like that. Plus, you know, I mean, the royalties I got from that allowed me to be able to afford to create more music and things like that. Mm -hmm. Now let's turn that around, you know, where like, let's say that same piece had come out and only 50 bands bought it, but they made PD, you know, they loved it, but made PDFs of it and just put it online, shared it with everybody. And everybody's like, Oh, well, you know, we're, uh, we're paying you in performances. You know, we're, we're giving you exposure. Um, Exposure doesn't, uh, doesn't make publishers want to publish you more. Um, sales do. I mean, that's the bottom line. And I know that sounds very flat and like cold, but it's the truth. Um, so for me, like when people buy my music, I am very grateful uh, because they, they, you know, when you buy, when you buy music from any composer, you are acting as a patron. You are allowing their career to continue. You're basically telling the publisher, yes, we want more from this person. Um, and so it's, you know, I think when, uh, with the whole copyright thing, like I, sometimes I just don't think directors think about 
you know, like how is this affecting the people who are creating these works? Hmm. Well, I know at least uh, in Virginia, there's been a, a lot of discussion about copyright law um, in the last several years. At least I, I haven't seen in our area people doing the, the Google Drive PDF thing. I would not work with any directors who would do that. That's just extremely... Oh, I've, I, I'm telling you, I've been asked by honor bands to send PDFs of my music to, to them so they can distribute to all their directors. And I'm just like, I mean, and again, you know, I can't control what they do, but I can control what I do. And I'm like, you know, it's like I can send you, you know, a physical copy of the music. I don't know what you do beyond that, but, you know, I'm just not going to contribute to that culture. Now, having said that, I mean, I'm also not blind. You know, we are moving to a more digital version of band, especially, I think, you know, with the pandemic right now, um, you know, we are really experiencing where, you know, um, people are, you know, sharing things digitally and things like that. But there's also been a lot of publisher agreement to that. Hmm. You know, so in other words, it is, you know, and I'm, I'm not speaking for all publishers, but like, you know, my company that I just started, uh, Randall Standard Music, you know, we... I put a few Facebook messages out, put you know, things on websites that said, you know, you are, you know, as long as you have a physical copy of this, you are free to distribute it to your students as long as they only receive their copy of their part. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like, I don't want a kid getting like the full set, but, you know, like, I think we're going to be approaching a model like that pretty soon. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, more kids are using iPads, more, more classrooms are using iPads. Um, and I think that's good, but you know, at the same time, there still has to be fair use. There still has to be, you know, supporting the publishers and the industries that are creating these works. Well, do you have a piece that you've written that you feel like you are the most proud of right now? Um, it would probably be. Uh, I'd have to pick three, and I know that I'm, I'm not trying to just publicize <laughs> these, but like, I really, I love these three pieces, and I can't really decide between them. And one of them is is it's probably going to take you off guard, which one it is. Um, the first one was one I mentioned, um, uh, you know, earlier in the conversation, which was Stonewall 1969. Um, and I'm proud of it for a lot of reasons, but the biggest thing is it is just by far the most complex piece I've written because it incorporates wind ensemble, um, a vocalist and, um, a slam poet, like somebody reading poetry all in it. And it's not just that it's all happening once, but it's all very interconnected, like with the symbology, the images, the representation with the music to the words. The second thing about it that I love is that um, I what I'm finding the further I get into my career is that my biggest interest in composition is mixing like the pop idiom with the symphonic idiom, like taking those elements and, you know, not necessarily trying to represent them like I was talking about earlier, but just like when you put these together, how does it sound and how does it affect each other? You know, the Stonewall piece is based in a nightclub. And it's like, that's where these events happen. And so the sound is very authentically that. Like the opening part of it really sounds like it could be straight out of like Diana Ross or Donna Summers, you know, from that proto-disco late 60s time period. Um, and then it does some jazz and it has some Bernstein-esque things, but then it also has this big symphonic ending. Um, so I'm just really proud of it because I, and of course, you know, being a member of the LGBTQ plus community, um, commemorating that event and being asked to do that by the uh, National Lesbian Gay Band Association. It, it was just a big honor. I mean, they could have picked mm. anybody in the country to write that piece and they picked me. I, I was flabbergasted and honored. Um, the second piece, um, and I promise I don't like, not all my pieces have strong social messages, but the second piece uh, is a piece called the nine, um, which was, um, 
written for the 60th anniversary of the successful integration of Little Rock Central High School. Um, you know, and so it's about the Little Rock Central Nine. So really the piece deals with racism and overcoming that and this like fight between progress and regression, uh, which I think we're saying is very timely right now. Especially, you know, in that in that case with, with them using the National Guard at first to prevent. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. Prevent the kids from going to school. And then they use the National Guard to like let the kids attend the school. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely reminded me of some current events we're having right now. Uh, yes. Well, I mean, and, and you know, it's it's that thing. And um, being an Arkansas native, I was, again, honored to be asked to write the piece. The big thing, I, I'll be honest with that, I struggled with the piece was, uh, you know, the elephant in the room, which was I'm this 43 year old white guy writing about this very, you know, this experience that is very particular and very special to the African-American community. And, you know, it, it took me a lot, like, as I was brainstorming the piece, I, I tossed around a lot of ideas because what I didn't want to do was I did not want to speak for the nine because my life experience is so different from time period to, you know, the privilege I have as a, as a white male that I experience in my life. So, you know, I, I thought it would be presumptuous to try to speak for them. So I had to find a way into the piece that was more commenting on what happened as opposed to speaking for them. And that's a fine difference, but it is a difference. Yeah. Um, and so I think it, the piece turned out really well. Um, it's been pretty much universally praised. And I know that sounds really immodest, but I mean, every performance I've attended of it, every uh, performance I heard, it's just been met with, praise and uh, people appreciate the message and, and the styling of it. Um, and then the final piece, which is going to be totally out of left field on all these, uh, there's this Christmas piece I wrote that I love um, that's called A Christmas Tale, Beware the Krampus. And it is, um, you know, so it's, it's, if you're not familiar with the Krampus, it's the dark version of Santa Claus, who instead of giving you presents, if you've been bad, will either beat you with a switch or kidnap you and eat you. You know, so just good family fun. And um, again, you know, I know I've talked about a few of my irritations with band music. One of my irritations is when people write, you know, quote unquote, creepy music. Um, it's what I like to call creepy cute. Like, it's like they put it in a minor mode. They put in a few little sound effects and they're like, oh, we're being creepy. Ha ha ha. You know, I mean, kind of like Dark Ride. You know, Dark Ride's creepy cute. But I wanted the, this piece to be like terrifying, you know, like so it's and it apparently works. I've personally conducted the piece about five times and I'm not exaggerating. Little kids have cried at every performance. Does this have a voiceover component to it? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, it's got a poem. It's one of the only pieces I've ever written that I've gotten real. And I, I'm talking about genuine hate mail for, <laughs> um, you know, because, again, we're, we're living in the Facebook age so people can find you anywhere. And I had some moms that were very upset with me and really took me to task. Oh, man. <laughs> Which to me says it was successful. Yes. So. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I loved it when I heard it. I thought it was great because it's like it's not your typical cutesy thing. You know, it's it's got an element of, of real life to it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I've, uh, I think the, the neatest thing I saw, one of, one of my band director friends, you know, showed me what they did. They actually had like some of their high school kids come in dressed as elves and escort the young children out of the audience to the lobby for cookies <laughs> and things during the performance i was like that's smart that is really yes. smart i saw that you you had posted uh you know maybe last week of some some of the instances you had in your teaching career where you received some hate and some discrimination based off your sexual preference have you experienced some of those things as a composer absolutely 
Um, and I mean, I will say that it's not common. Um, my, my experience with the band rating community has been overwhelmingly positive. Um, but you know, there, there have been instances where, um, you know, I, I have been singled out for negative reasons because of that. Mm. I'll just, I'll tell you one story and this, I'll let this stand for kind of like, you know, the rest of them. But, um, I was in, um, I was in uh, Texas, actually. And let me preface this by saying to all my Texas friends out there, I love Texas. <laughs> and no, well, no, I mean, no, I mean, really, like Texas has been wonderful for my career. Um, that I have a great relationship with Texas directors and vice versa. So this is just a story. It's not supposed to reflect on the entire state, but it did happen there. Um, so I went down and did this region band Um and, uh, you know, uh, I've done several down there and it's always a great experience. I just always love it. And I know a lot of the directors down there. So it's kind of like, you know, meeting of friends. So we went out to dinner um, after one of the nights and uh, this uh, one particular lady who, you know, said she was a big fan of my music. I was like, oh, well, you know, thank you. So we sat there at dinner and talked for a little bit. And um, so, you know, of course, I had my wedding ring on and she asked me, she's like, oh, so, you know, what does your wife do? And, and yeah, I give the answer that I always get. I was like, well, you know, because I, I mean, I, I'm not confrontational and stuff like that, but I just explain, I'm like, well, I don't have a wife. I have a husband. I was like, and he's a band director as well, you know? And, um, it was like, you could feel the tension and the temperature of the room. And like, literally, I mean, she's sitting right across from me, just turned and would not even acknowledge me for the rest of the meal. And then not only that, not, not only that, but the next day she, like one of her, not, not like her kid, like her student, like her child was in my band, did not come to the next day's rehearsal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it doesn't take much to put two and two together. There. Yeah. And uh, there's been a few, few other things like that, or just, you know, comments that were made, um, you know, or, uh, you know, so I, I even had like, this is not no joke. Um, I've had um, commissions rescinded. Because, like, I'll post a picture of me and my husband out to eat on Facebook, and suddenly I get an email, well, our, our band parents have said we can't do this. Wow. You know? And so, um, so yeah, I mean, I've experienced a little bit, but generally speaking, you know, it's been positive. Which, I mean, I, I really don't make a big deal out of it. I just live my life. You know, I just tell people that I'm just going to be me. And, you know, it's kind of like the old saying, you know, you can be the most perfect peach in the world, and there will still be people who don't like peaches. Yeah. So I just kind of let it just roll off my back, you know. Well, I will say uh, my the school system I work in uh, has a very large amount of the student body who does identify as LGBTQ. And I think it's really inspirational to them when we are programming a work of yours. And, you know, we do talk about that and we do bring that up. And they're like, oh, oh, this person's like me. OK, and I think that's that's really great for those kids. You know, not all kids have a have an accepting family Um you know, to, to see you like so confident with that and putting your stuff out there on social media and like, like, I'm not going to hide this. Like, this is who I am. I think that's really inspirational for a lot of students who are going through the same thing. Well, I mean, I think the big thing, too, is like, I mean, I'm just going to be honest, like I, um, I I don't put it out there with the intent of like, you know, this is, you know, like it's I'm not it's not really born from a place of activism, but it's just which I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm definitely not ashamed of. Um, but. It's just, I mean, I'm living my life. Like, yeah. you know, um, it, it's funny because like, you know, like, you know, me and Steve will go out to eat and I'll just put, you know, I'll put a, something on Instagram, I'll put Facebook and hey, we're doing this. And suddenly, you know, I'll get 
inundated by messages from band directors who are, you know, quote unquote, thanking me, which I'm appreciative for. But at the same time, I'm like, I'm not trying to downplay it, but it's just like, you know, it's like, we're just going out to eat. Like, I'm just showing my life. Like, that's all I'm doing. But I also think it's important to do that because, um, you know, I think for some people, it takes the abstract idea of this community and brings it to a specific person. Hmm. And it's, you know, it's just, um, it, it makes it a little bit more personal yeah. uh, for them, I think. Um, cause again, I don't really think about it that much, but, um, but I think for them, when it's somebody they know, somebody they can identify with, even if it's just on a level of I've played his music, I know, you know, I, I saw him at the Sonner band. Um, you know, it, it makes it, it just, it just makes it different. Like it's different than this just abstract concept, you know? Well, let's pivot away from music for a second. Uh, I stumbled upon some some pictures of you, uh, uh, kind of from like like when you started teaching, like a way long time ago, versus now. And your physical transformation has been like just absolutely <laughs> inspirational and like amazing. Um, so, well, thank you. <laughs> so, at, at what point did you say, you know what, I'm I'm going to commit to exercise? It was it just something you did for fun, or was it something that you did like spiritually, or to become a better person, or you're just like I need to get healthy? What was the um. Well, I mean, the biggest, well, two, two things. Um, and I, I'm just going to tell it like it is. One is just, um, is total vanity. I, I'm not going to lie. Um, it was just, I mean, well, but, but I mean, it was born from a place of unhappiness. Um, because, uh, you know, at the end of my band directing career, um, which I mean, I'm sure many of your listeners can know, you know, I mean, I, please understand, I know like band directing is hard and it is time consuming. And it is, you know, if you're not careful, if you don't find a good work life balance, it can really, eat away all of your time. And that includes your time for self-care, you know? And so at the end of my uh, teaching career, you know, between the teaching career and the composing career, I really didn't have a lot of time. And so my health and physicality had gotten out of hand and, you know, I was not in a good place mentally or physically. Mm. And so um, it, it was literally, I know it sounds really cliche, but like I looked in the mirror one day and I just hated what I saw. Like, I was like, this is not, the health I want to have, this is not the body I want to have, you know, and um, this is just not the kind of life I want to live. And so I just like made a change that I went, I like, I literally went straight to the gym, like in my clothes, didn't have any gym clothes, signed up for a membership and started working out that first day. uh, No joke. Like I walked like not even, you know, fast, like probably two and a half miles per hour. I walked on a uh, treadmill for about 15 minutes and I was so out of breath, I could barely breathe. Wow. And, but, but I was like, okay, you know, my, my goal was like, I'm going to do this every day for a month and see what happens. And of course, you know, for those of you that do physical stuff, know, you know, the next, you know, the next few days it got easier. The next few days it got easier and I was able to do more and I felt better. And of course the weight started coming off. And uh, so from that, I, I, I did that for about a year just on my own. Um, and I got to a point where I had lost some weight, but I didn't really have a lot of muscle and I was kind of like stuck. And then I kind of reverted to teacher mode. I'm like, well, if I don't know what to do, then I need to find somebody to teach me. And so I, uh, signed up for personal training. I got a, got a personal trainer to, to work with me mainly because I just didn't know what to do. Like, I, I mean, I was willing, my work ethic was great, but you know, work ethic with, and this is a good lesson for those of you, you know, with your kids, Work ethic, but, you know, hampered by ignorance is still a problem. You know, Mm. if you don't know what to do, it doesn't matter how hard you work, you can't do it, you know. 
And so um, I started working with a personal trainer and uh, he showed me some, you know, some lifting things and some more nutrition things. And it just kind of kept spiraling from there. And now I do, I mean, like I lift pretty heavy. Um, you know, I do, I've started doing what's called Olympic lifting. Now that doesn't mean I'm competing, but it's just the style of lifting. And I really love it because it's really physical and really fun. And it, it requires a lot of technique and not just strength. Um, so it's really fun to do. Um, although I will say that my obsession with, uh, you know, the physical side did also lead to a very unfortunate injury about a year ago, yeah. uh, where I tore my bicep away from my bone. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's the sound pretty much everybody makes when I tell that story. <laughs> so, um, but, uh, but I mean, it's better now. Um, and it was my own fault. It was, it was, you know, kind of like, you know, when people miss notes, it was bad technique. Mm. And I mean, I don't blame my trainers at all because it was me not paying attention on that particular day. But boy, one mistake and you're, I mean, it was unfortunate, you know. Well, I've recently stumbled upon your TikTok account. You have a, oh yeah, <laughs> you have some, some nice dance moves. Is, is dancing a hobby or is well, that just you. like kind of for fun or as a joke, you know? Well, well, a little bit of both. I mean, uh, you know, again, something that a lot of people may not know about me is that I um, I taught color guard for 20 years. Um, so, I mean, you know, I mean, I can spin flags, rifles, all that stuff and, and dance, you know, so that's because that's part of the vocabulary you have to have. So, I mean, I'm very comfortable like dancing and doing stuff like that. And it's just fun. I have zero self-consciousness. Um, plus, I'm definitely one of those people that I don't take myself too seriously um, because I mean, I know there are certain composers who would just be mortified to put anything out there like that. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm just not that kind of guy. I'm, you know, I like to think I'm approachable and I'm just like everybody else. I like to have fun. I have a very broad sense of humor. Um, and it's just, it's just another outlet for creativity and fun. Well, I was, I was looking through, uh, some of your videos. I saw your video of, uh, how how different composers wash their hands <laughs> oh my god i've not laughed so hard in in, in such a long time <laughs> yeah and I, I will say for for most of the living composers i got their permission before including them i told i told i told them what i was going to do you know and how i was going to do it and they all agreed the only the only living composer um you know, that I didn't get you know permission for to do that was Philip Glass, but I really don't think he's concerned about what I do. <laughs> Probably um, not. So, uh, so yeah, that's awesome. But, uh, but they were all good sports. Cause yeah, I mean, one thing, you know, with a lot of the composers in the band world, a lot of us know each other and, uh, you know, we've been to conventions, we've been to honor bands. Um, like, I mean, Brian Balmage is, is a personal friend of mine. Like we, we usually talk at least once every two to three weeks. Um, and we're always, you know, chatting at each other on Facebook and he's also one of my editors you know, he's the editor at FJH. And, uh, then, you know, like, um, I've, I've known Tyler Grant for years. Um, me and Julie Giroux became friends a couple years back and, um, I've got a Facebook friendship that's developed over time with like John Mackey. And so, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's a small world of composers and a lot of us, you know, don't take ourselves too seriously and just have fun. And especially with it being, you know, during the beginning of the pandemic, I thought it was a fun way to remind people to wash their hands, um, but still have, you know, still have a little laugh, yeah. you know. Well, I, I thought it was fantastic. I think we're, we are finally at our interview code. I have three final questions that I like to ask everybody. So question number one, do you have a mentor shout out? My, well, I mean, really, it would just be to my two composition teachers. Um, so Dr. Tom O'Connor and Dr. Tim Christ. Um, from Arkansas State University, they were just incredible. And they were so different because uh, Dr. O'Connor mainly specialized in acoustic music. 
So, um, yeah, and especially band, like he's a band guy. He was a band director. And then Dr. Christ on the total opposite end of the spectrum, um, mainly uh, does um, electro acoustic and electronic music. And so I was able to learn that skill set uh, from him. And, and, you know, it was just so neat to be around two people who had such a passion for music and for composing, but have such completely different point of views. All right. Number two, do you have a favorite beginning band piece? Um, if I had to pick my absolute uh, favorite beginning band piece of all time, it would be Creepy Crawlies by Mike yes. Story. Um, I, I have never put that in front of a group that did not absolutely love it. And every time I conducted it, I loved it. Yeah, I, I featured that on uh, one of the previous episodes of the show. Oh, yeah. It's, well, it's just a great piece. And I think one of the things that I, I specifically mentioned is like, I feel like there are some composers who give their beginning band music like really absurd names because I guess they'll think that kids can identify with it. But like, I feel like that is a piece where the name and the character of the music match so well. Like it's, it's just, Oh yeah. Yeah. It's completely authentic. Like you can, you can paint a very clear picture in your head of like a bug's life listening to that composition. Right. And well, and the thing too, is it's a really funny piece. Yes. Like it's, you know, it's, it's got a lot of humor and um, I'm, I'm a big advocate of humor and music. Now, I mean, not everything I write is funny, but um, it's, I don't know. There just seems to be this resistance in music in particular to humor because, or, or I mean, humor as serious art. Mm. And I mean, serious just as in, you know, authentic and worthy because I mean, humor is just as much of a human emotion that's worth exploring as anything else. When I think of creepy crawlies, you know, I, that logically to me leads me to Haydn, who I think has a lot of, you know, funny music, Mozart. And um, then of course you've got the Saint-Song Carnival of the Animals, which is hilarious and, uh, and just bright and, um, you know, amusing. So I, no, I think Creepy Crawlies is right in that family of humorous pieces that are just great. Awesome. All right. And uh, the final question, name a band director who is crushing it right now, or perhaps in your case, you could name a composer who you think is crushing it right now. Oh, gosh. Um, I, that, that's a really hard one to, uh, to think about. Um, if I had to pick a, a director who is crushing it in a lot of ways, I'm gonna, can I pick two? Sure. Because I would have difficulty choosing between these. Um, my, really, the first one that leaps to mind is, is uh, Cynthia Johnston Turner at uh, University of Georgia Athens. Um, she had me down for uh, as as a uh, conductor for this thing they do there called Jan Fest, which is this huge musical. It's it's my favorite honor band experience I have ever been a part of. It was just amazing, but it wasn't just that. You know, so of course, you know, she was helping. You know run the thing, guide it, do that. But on one of the nights, um, her ensemble performed. And I have never been so engaged in a performance, um, I mean, from the musicality to her rapport with the audience to the programming. I mean, every element that you could have wanted was just beyond anything you could have expected. And so I, she, she is amazing. I mean, just uh, amazing. If you don't know, listeners, if you don't know her, you need to make it a point. She is incredible. And then um, I would also have to say um, Alex Kaminsky, um, who is at Vandercook now um, and had a few positions in Florida prior to this, um, you know, took several bands to Midwest, you know, and is doing great things at Vandercook. Uh, he and his, his just knowledge of pedagogy and musicality is second to none. But he what, what I appreciate about Alex is even though he's so accomplished, he still has this hunger for learning and always improving. He, he's just, he is the best type of scholar. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Oh, no problem. Well, thank you for having me. Um, I hope I didn't say anything too offensive. <laughs> <laughs> you know what time it is. Thank you.
This week's pick is Starfire Fanfare by Randall Standridge, published by Randall Standridge Music LLC. Since we have the composer himself on the show today, I thought it would be fitting to feature one of his works. Starfire Fanfare is a fresh new work that makes 6-8 approachable for a beginning ensemble. This piece starts with an exciting, bright, happy sound led by the trumpet section. The next section has some beautiful legato woodwind playing, followed by the brass section. This is punctuated by a tasty use of the woodblock and other percussion instruments. This piece is the perfect introduction to 6-8 for beginners. The rhythms are often played in unison throughout the ensemble, but utilizing different harmonies. The percussion writing is tasteful and uses a variety of instruments. There are two clarinet parts and two trumpet parts. The trumpets don't go above A. The clarinet one is almost entirely under the break, but there is some repeated tongued passages on the G above the staff, but that could easily be transposed down to open G if needed. We know your kids will love it. This has been... All right, everybody, that's about it for today. Please check out the show notes to see links to everything that we talked about today and check out our page on Facebook, The Flying Baton. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks for joining us on The Flying Baton. Remember, may your tone be dark and your humor light.